You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Kia Wilson here today, again, with something a little different for you. And I'm not just speaking of my head cold. Sorry, it's a little bit hard to understand me. If you're a dedicated listener of the Strong Towns Podcast, you know very well by now that Strong Towns is primarily focused on getting people to ask a different set of questions about how we build our world and the implications our choices might have for our community's future, not the least of which are the financial implications of a dominant development pattern that is designed around cars. So in that equation, improving cycling infrastructure and de-emphasizing auto-oriented development is often some of the most important things that our cities and towns can do if they want to become financially sustainable. And as someone who rides a bike, speaking personally, it's one of the most important elements of our mission to me, um, especially living in an auto-oriented city. But of course, a real living, breathing city is very different than a simple balance sheet. And when it comes to actually doing the work of putting in bike lanes, things can get complicated because life is messy and people have different opinions. My guest today wrote a fascinating book that examines one particularly important consideration, which is how expanding bike infrastructure and putting more bikes in our communities can impact communities of color specifically, which almost all of our towns have. Her name is Melody L. Hoffman, and her book, Bike Lanes Are White Lanes, is one of the most challenging, provocative, and important books I read last year, and I am so thrilled to be able to have a deeper conversation with her. Welcome to the podcast, Melody. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so happy you were able to make the time. So first off, tell me a bit, Melody, about your journey to writing this book. How did you become interested in cycling and particularly in how cycling is perceived and received in diverse communities? I started cycling when I was a child to get to my friends' houses, but I picked it back up again when I was in college in Milwaukee. And this was before the big bicycling boom of the... I don't know what you want to call it, like, like the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Uh, so I was not part of a big mass group of people in Milwaukee bicycling. But then after a lot of successful years biking in Milwaukee, I moved to Minneapolis for a PhD program and I started biking there. And as your listeners might know, Minneapolis is very similar to Portland, Oregon, and that we're known for our bicycle amenities, our bicycle trails, our lanes, all that good stuff. We're treated well here as bicyclists. But as I was biking throughout a bunch of different neighborhoods, I noticed how racialized some of the biking spaces were. So I was very much in tune with the bike messenger population, which at around 2009 was very dominated by the white punk guys, like the kind of stereotype of the bike messenger you might think of. And I was, you know, seeing them brag about drinking on the trails and getting together and having happy hours in public spaces where you can't necessarily drink. But then at the same time, I would be like biking to school and I'd be seeing police officers talking to um, Native Americans who are also on the trail drinking beer, um, but they were being stopped and talked to, whereas my bike messenger friends, like they didn't even consider that a possibility for them when they would get together and drink. So I was seeing some very significant race and class dynamics going on within the bicycle scene. And the deeper that I got into it, the more I realized that something was going on. Something was just not making me feel very comfortable 
comfortable. And then my friend moved to Portland. And right before he moved, he was doing some research about the city. And he found out that a group of residents in a historically black neighborhood started referring to bicycle lanes as gentrification and that they were a tool of racism. And that just kind of flipped my thinking. Like I was like, okay, I think what I'm seeing is like, that was my gut instinct, but now I feel like it's kind of validated. And so that kind of started my process of looking deeper into this issue. And the deeper I looked into it, the more examples I got, but I decided to just focus on three cities that I know pretty well, Portland, Minneapolis, and Milwaukee. So that perception that you're talking about in historically black communities, you introduce it in the book by way of this concept called the rolling signifier. This this kind of blew my mind a little bit because as a person who rides a bike, it never occurred to me to think of my bicycle as anything like a signifier. It's a mode of transportation that I happen to think is fun and pretty and also a useful tool for making my city more financially sustainable and livable. But of course, those are significations when you really break it down. Tell me a bit about what over the course of your research, you found bikes to signify in the communities of color that you studied and why that signification should matter to us. So every community is different and has their own kind of takes on bicycling. But what I realized is that when communities would push back against bicycle lanes or bicycle trails along the lines of it being a form of gentrification or racism, they weren't saying that they didn't like bicycling. So it wasn't that bicycling itself was an evil that they were trying to stop. They were seeing more of a signification in what the infrastructure itself symbolized to the neighborhood. But simultaneously, in some of these communities, riding a bicycle is not the like environmentally friendly, anti-capitalistic, radical activity that a lot of white um, middle-class people kind of see the bike as. For a lot of people, riding a bicycle is like their only option. So if they can't afford a car and the bus doesn't run at the time that their shift starts, they have no option but to bicycle. So it's not seen as this like signifier of how they care about the environment. It is a mode of transportation that is a necessity to them. It's also a signifier then of poverty in some spaces. And so a lot of people that grow up in poverty, um, lower class neighborhoods, they want to get out of there. And one of the quickest signifiers of wealth is owning a vehicle. And so what is the point then of owning a bike if that only signifies that you're too broke to afford a car? And so those are just a few of the different symbols that I saw communicated within specific neighborhoods and communities. And so it's that tension between the bicycle being seen as a cool, hip, environmentally friendly thing versus being it seen as a necessity that really starts to create some conflict within neighborhoods. But certainly other things like the neighborhood's history adds to that as well. But I think without talking about the bicycle meaning different things to different people, we can't really move the discussion further much more. I'm sure there are people listening to this right now thinking, well, the answer is just to educate, <laughs> um, to tell people who might think that bicycles signify poverty, that they're wrong, that they indicate all these other things. And that was one of the things about the book I really appreciated is you actually tackle quite directly the way that bike advocates tend to argue, especially white middle class bike advocates who have the sort of worldview you're describing, that we tend to say, 
well, a bike is environmentally friendly, it's economically good, um, you have the wrong signification, and if you just get it straight, then you can get on board and you'll be happier for it. You also talk about, when you turn to the infrastructure question, the build it and they will come mentality that many bike advocates believe that the reason more people don't ride a bike is just because they don't have a good place to do it safely. And if you build the lane, of course, they'll be riding in no time. What's wrong with these mindsets? And how can we do better short of just telling someone that they have the wrong idea? Well, to answer your question somewhat simultaneously, and I might actually contradict myself here, but one element of not just accepting that some people see this as a sign of poverty or a necessity is that within those spaces, though, in which people are using bicycles in that way, there's often not infrastructure or the streets are just dangerous to begin with because in these neighborhoods, they've been disinvested from for decades. And so they're already having problems getting to work, um, getting to the grocery store, because the streets that they live around are not paid attention to in the same ways that more middle to upper class neighborhoods are paid attention to, or vice versa, that the people that are living in those richer neighborhoods feel like they have the power to go to the city and ask for things that they need. And that, that's not necessarily a bike lane, but it could be a crosswalk or better street lights. You know, there's a lot of different things. Um, and unfortunately, in St. Paul, the city that I live right next to, we had a, sadly, a, a person named Jose died in a bike on car crash. And he was an immigrant from Mexico and sending money back to his family. And he was biking in an area of St. Paul, like St. Paul is not set up the same way that Minneapolis is for biking. And so there are these very real vulnerable riders um, that are already kind of marginalized in our society that, again, have to suffer from the lack of infrastructure and investment in their neighborhoods. But then at the same time, the bill that they will come, right? So, okay, well, maybe we should have just had bike lanes everywhere in St. Paul and this wouldn't have been an issue. If you actually talk to the people that might not choose to use the bike lane in their community, and these this is coming from some community discussions I've had, just kind of being around the bike advocacy scene for a long time. The people that I talked to, you know, they said, well, bike lane or not, like, I want to be able to ride with my family. You know, I need a lock for my bike. I don't have anywhere to store it in my apartment. Um, how can I make sure that the police don't harass me when I go out into public spaces, right? So they'll talk about all of that stuff before they'll even talk about needing a bicycle lane. And so when you just put a bike lane out and say, here it is, um, you're not addressing the barriers that are really getting people on their bike, right? So for the white middle-class person, they feel like their one barrier is like, I need a protected bike lane to feel safer. But that is not the lived experience of all people that bicycle. It reminds me of a study I saw earlier this year that I think People for Bikes put out. It was actually one of the first dedicated studies of riders of color versus white riders. And it was exactly like what you said. White riders tend to identify the number one barrier to their safety being lack of protected infrastructure, whereas riders of color would say things like they were worried they would get stranded somewhere or the proximity of bike shops or not having a place to lock up what for them would be a larger 
like asset. <laughs> Whereas if a bike gets stolen from someone who has more money, regardless of their color, they would absolutely have a different set of priorities. To pivot just a little bit, you gave a great example of how to do better when you talked about a particular bike trail in Milwaukee that ran along one of the city's deepest segregation lanes. I believe it's called the Artery. So like a lot of bike lanes in America, the trail was designed by, no surprise, young white designers. They dominate the engineering and architecture professions, just statistically. But they did something a little bit different than a lot of bike trail designers do. The lead designer went out into this community and then the trail was only an idea and actually canvassed the neighborhood and got immediate design feedback from as many people as he could talk to. I believe his name is Peter. It sounds like the trail was much more accepted by the local community and better utilized by the actual residents after it was built. Why do you think his approach was so successful? And what tips would you have for anyone who might be listening who would like to engage a similar community engagement process. Yeah. So his name's actually Keith. Oh, I was so close. (laughs) So I think what was different is that Keith, even though he was a white guy, uh, didn't show up in a suit. You know, he's like a grungy art bike guy. He lived near that neighborhood and asked what people wanted and then like actually implemented it where a lot of times with urban planners, they'll get our input you know, and then you see the plan go into action and you're like, did you actually like hear me? Or like, maybe you heard me, but you're just doing this to like check off a box. Like you didn't actually use my feedback. And cause also most of the time people, urban planners or whatever consulting group that they hire to present will already have kind of a plan, right? So they'll be like, this is our plan. What feedback do you have? And at that point, it's really hard with all of us that don't have urban planning degrees to offer a legitimate feedback that an urban planner could use, right? It's just kind of a, just an announcement, like, here's here's what we're going to do. Hope you like it. And then if you don't, we'll, we'll write down your feedback. And that's just been my perception, right? I'm sure a lot of people could argue that their situation was different. But going back to the artery, you got rid of all that kind of formality of those meetings that are very predictable. They implemented the stuff right away and they kept in touch with the neighborhood. And they also used the neighborhood's culture as part of the artery. So for example, even though it would be a white woman organizing this, they had a um, open mic session in which people would actually kind of compete to be in the showcase later that summer. And so, of course, you would have a lot of people coming out and doing spoken word and hip hop because those were forms of art that was really important to that community. And then you had basketball hoops going in, you had a big stage for people to perform at, and it was never closed off. So people could access the space at any time. It enlivened the area, which it was kind of just an abandoned uh, railroad track area. Uh, Litter was not thrown as much as it did before. And they just kept the community a part of the program. I mean, it's a lot of work. It's tiring. (laughs) But it worked out really well because the community was in full support of it. And it was a very successful project. And I think some of that is because they worked outside of the status quo, and they worked outside of the system that is usually in charge of building these bicycle trails. It's interesting to me that it created so many things that weren't bike lanes in this community. That brings me to a question I had about a specific quote in your book. You say that sometimes bike lane 
advocates have trouble taking no for an answer, which there is no truer statement that has ever been made. And you talk about, well, in some ways that perseverance is a positive thing. And whenever you are advocating for something that is against a dominant cultural approach, bikes are not the default in our society. Cars are, generally speaking. You do need your share of perseverance. But you also point out the problematic aspects of being simply a bike advocate rather than an advocate for bottom-up planning, especially if the arguments that you're going to be making for a bike lane are that it would better serve residents. You need to actually do the work of listening to residents. Could you say a little bit more about any circumstances you found where the community did say no to a bike lane and how you would suggest people in power would react in moments like that? You know, I don't have a specific example in which residents said no to a bike lane in the way in which I'm talking about it, and then it didn't get developed. What we see more often in news, especially if you follow like urban planning news, is that residents will come out and say that they don't want a bike lane because it takes away their parking, right? So in terms of the kind of no that I'm talking about, in terms of like, we need a different investment in our community. I don't want $10,000 going to a bike lane. I want it to go towards safe crosswalks for my children. In terms of that, I've never seen that actually happen in which the bike advocates had said, oh, no, just, okay, fine, we'll we'll backtrack a little bit. And I think a lot of that has to do with funding, you know, for one, like sometimes when they get to the, the neighborhood, the funding's already in place. It's already going to happen. It's just that how and when it's going to happen can get stalled or delayed by a community. So an example of that actually is in North Minneapolis, they want to put in a greenway, which in our neck of the woods means that the street would be converted at this point to more of a bike pedestrian area and that cars would not be allowed in certain sections of the greenway. So instead of taking over like a railroad track, they're actually going to take over a pretty quiet neighborhood street. There's a lot of pushback for that for a lot of different reasons all over the map. And so that plan has been slowed down significantly, but they did really amazing community outreach that were based in community organizations to, again, not really like see whether the community wanted it, but to like pitch it better, you know, like let's find a way to get the community on board with this. And I feel like in some neighborhoods, I get it because like in North Minneapolis, there is some very sad health disparities, um, high rates of asthma, diabetes, obesity. And so, you know, the public health department is like, we need this for like your health. We're not just, we're not doing this for a developmental reason, which um, is not the case in some areas in Minneapolis and Portland the ways in which bike advocates initialize the conversation has has everything to do with whether the community is going to be on board or not. And so, no, I haven't seen um, bike advocates walk away. I think it's because of funding, because if they say, well, I want crosswalks, it doesn't mean that that funding stream is the same funding stream that could give them crosswalks, right? But then on this, at the same point, the idea of maybe having a more complicated process or a more streamlined, smooth process really has to do with whether the advocates enter into the neighborhood or already part of the neighborhood with the knowledge of the neighborhood's history, things that the neighborhood and community are looking for in new infrastructure, instead of just coming in and being like, you need this. So here it is. Uh, I don't know why you're not thanking me. Okay, you're okay. Well, we're still gonna give you the bike lane. Thanks. And then they leave. 
that idea of community engagement is not just coming to a community with a blank slate saying, do with me what you will, but literally saying it's sometimes it's about building buy-in and doing some of that work of identifying someone's needs and then showing why bicycling could serve that need. I think that that's accessible and very approachable for a number of people. And it gets to a question of culture that you raise in the book. Um, one of my favorite sections in Bike Lanes or White Lanes actually isn't about a bike lane at all. It's about the River Rest 24 bicycling event in Milwaukee and the role of biking events in developing a diverse and inclusive bicycle culture, both for its own sake and also in order to build that neighborhood buy-in for more permanent bicycle infrastructure that could be used day to day. Could you tell me a little bit about that event and why you chose to include it in the book? Yeah. So I've been a part of that event since its beginnings uh, when I was still living in Milwaukee. And I've always been interested in the neighborhood's history because it is, it's a fascinating neighborhood in terms of how it was developed, who ended up living there. It has resisted gentrification, even though it has all the signs of gentrification to come in terms of like the punk rock coffee shop and the tattoo stores and the vegan food and the co-op. And it's like at any time it could flip but it stays ungentrified for a large part. And I think it's because of how dedicated the neighbors are to the neighborhood. So there's a lot of investment in the neighborhood. Longtime homeowners, renters that are very loyal. Another part of the neighborhood, though, is that it sits on the segregation line. So the artery that I was talking about is in a slightly different part of the neighborhood, but it follows that same segregation line. And I'm not being hyperbolic in any in any way ask anybody from Milwaukee and there's you know the Holton Avenue is one of the segregation lines there's not it's not even a controversial statement and so River West runs right along that segregation line I noticed over the years right so it's it just finished up its 10th year as an event which is amazing there is still a dominant white group that participates, despite the fact that the organizers, they are all white, but they are like racial justice activists. And they'll say, you know, I have black friends, you know, and not in that like problematic way, but like they have a diverse group of friends. And we're sitting right next to a neighborhood that is predominantly African American. And yet, being an open, accessible event that is really for anybody. It's not the like spandex road warriors, right, that show up. Um, They're often like marginalized very quickly. Despite that, how come it still ends up being a very white space? And so I just was trying to kind of dig through the event and what the organizers say and observing things myself and trying to come to some conclusions. And, you know, one of the conclusions I made, which also ties in with urban planning is like looking at the organizing team. So from the very beginning, it was all white people. And no matter who you have friends with, it just, it just, it, it is what it is, right? You're making a white culture space. And if you work in a space that is not predominantly white, you notice how quickly the culture shifts and how different the planning can get. And so I think that is one of the reasons why it stayed so white dominated. And I see the same thing happening in urban planning that, you know, going back to like visiting those neighborhoods, that shouldn't even be a thing. Like there should already be urban planners on your team that live in those neighborhoods. Right. So if you're struggling to get a connection with somebody in a neighborhood in your city, you should be thinking more about why don't you have people on your team that have those connections and fixing that so you can have better community engagement. And so I think the same thing could be said for the River West 24. And I mean, they know that they're aware of the problem. 
And I think, you know, they're too, they're too deep in it now to really change much of the culture. Um, but I, I do think that given all the variables, all the, you know, critical thinking and the attempts to bring in some more of the neighborhood Harambe, which is on the other side of the segregation line, nothing is working. And I think you have to go back to the first variable was like, who's doing the planning, even though it's so simple. Like, I think it's one of the most powerful things that people can change, but they, they won't, you know, it's very hard, you know, that's a big ask, but you know, in, in my community organizing activism that I do, the groups that are the most diverse amongst all, you know, and I'm not just taking, talking about race, class, sexuality, abilities, all that stuff, education, that's when real work can happen because your network gets bigger. So something to consider for your listeners. I completely agree with that. And it reminds me of a quote you have in the book about how due to cultural differences, an innovative approach in engaging Latino women may not transfer well to engaging Somali women. Like the culture of even just a neighborhood, which might not demographically be homogenous whatsoever, is something that you need to consider. And how can you get people who can understand the nuances of that neighborhood? It's not. It may not be a community engagement process purely. It may be actually hiring someone with insider bespoke knowledge. Do you have any other tips for how listeners who are proposing a bike lane might create a bespoke community development strategy to meaningfully engage their unique residents? The answers are, the answer is always so simple, but it's actually hard to execute, but it really is trying to find community leaders in, in those areas, right? So just taking your example, if I'm trying to get a bike lane through a Somali neighborhood, so here in Minneapolis, we have a huge Somali population, which is a country in East Africa. And so they have a lot of cultural differences um, that are different than the Latino population that we have and the Hmong population. And so I would first go and try to find the community leaders, what person does that Somali community trust? And so we can get some buy-in. Um, and so that could be the older person or um, somebody who works at the library, right? You have to really think outside the box. And that's why you brought up earlier something about you, you, you can't just be a bike advocate. You know, you also have to be a housing advocate and general transportation advocate. You have to have knowledge in a lot of different places because that's where your network is going to go. Really reaching out to the community in a genuine way is the only way that it's going to go, um, especially if you have an all white team and you just have to be real about that. You know, like I think white people have a really hard time, like, admitting that they're white and that they have these barriers, you know, it's like, it's cool. We're all white. Like we got to go find some people. We got to find some, some Somali people like that can really help us with this. And those people exist. There's people that like are really invested in cycling for health reasons, for transportation reasons, for activities with children. They're out there. They're just not using bikes in the same spaces and ways that you are. So you probably don't run into them. And so they exist, you just need to um, network with them. And that's why, you know, of course, in the perfect world, or in a world that I hope I will see very soon, is a much more diverse planning group in urban planning and other kind of advocacy circles. But for now, you know, the short of the long is really just to like engage community leaders. But that's like basic organizing, you know, one on one. That's that's what you do. And if you're not doing that, that's when you're going to start to run into problems. 
Right. So to close us out, in case this listener is out there, what would you say to a listener who's gotten to this point in the interview and is just frustrated? I'll admit that I had moments reading your book, which are human moments, when I felt a little bit of despair because it's hard enough some days to advocate for bikeable streets. And the idea that I am shouting over my neighbors was hard for me to confront, you know, at certain moments. It's difficult to hear that in addition to making cogent arguments for why bike lanes and bike infrastructure are worth the city's time, that you also have to find ways to be mindful of the neighborhood. What would you say to someone who is in a moment of despair like that? I say this somewhere in my book too, but bike advocates do a really good thing. We're trying to get more people on bikes. Like that is a great, great thing. It's an important job. It's a very difficult job. So Knowing that, you know, we still need to be reflexive. And, you know, one of the questions that kind of got my interest uh, digging into this very difficult topic is seeing all of these people, white, white people that were like, really concerned about why more people of color weren't riding like they legitimately were like, I want to see more diverse groups of people cycling, and I don't know how to do it, right? With that good intention, we have to be thinking critically about how we present this stuff. Because what I don't want to have happen is that somebody goes into a neighborhood with their good intention of creating a bike lane or a bike trail to help health disparities and get a lot of pushback because they just kind of come in with their white culture and their white bike advocacy and get flummoxed when they get pushback, right? So my goal in the book is, you know, one to kind of lift up some of the things that people of color have been talking about for a long time and showing how you can have legitimate community engagement that brings people together and gets people on bikes or at least walking on the trail, but also so you don't have this pushback. Because when I would watch these things unfold, it's like, well, if they just understood the neighborhood's history of being disinvested from and, you know, taken advantage of, then what if the urban planners went in there with that knowledge and said, like, listen, I know this is going to be a hard sell for you. I know what they've done to you before. They built a freeway through your neighborhood. I get that. I'm here because I want to help. But that's usually not the approach that's taken. For those of people who are just like, I give up, I can't do anything right. I mean, I think that the white guilt that happens is not helpful. It's something that we have to just kind of like deal with and then be like, okay, well, how can I transform this into something that's more helpful? And I think it's really just taking more time to understand neighborhoods, to get to know the people that live there, to understand their history, and to really get at why they do like to bike because they already do bike. They just bike in a different way and to frame things differently. And I know that is going to be a struggle though, for some people listening, because they're going to be like, well, my boss won't have that. We have a, we have a structured way that we pitch all this stuff from the city and this is just how it is, you know? And my response would be like, well, that's great. But do they also want to deal with the PR nightmare of communities backlashing against this? And you're going to have some great press with that. So, and I don't want to turn it into like, well, you better do X, Y, and Z so you don't have bad PR to deal with. But like for people who are moved by that kind of argument, that might help for you. But I think it's just more of an awakening and awareness that it's like, oh, I just kind of have to shift how I'm doing this. Like, I don't have to stop doing it. What I'm doing is a good thing. I just need to bring a little bit more education and context to the table and some better networking and things will work out better for everybody because it'll be more of a community plan than a top to bottom plan. Yeah. Well, you make a really good case for 
involving communities of color in this process as being a gift that is being left on the table in a lot of cases, rather than an additional barrier that we need to overcome in order to get bike lanes where we want there to be bike lanes. That was the thing that was really exciting to me about the book is it left me feeling like, oh, wow, this isn't something that's just about my guilt and my fear. It's it's a real opportunity to be able to be representative and get some really good ideas that I naturally wouldn't get if I were involved in one of these processes. So thank you for shining a light on that. That's all I've got, Melody. Is there anything else that you want to be sure that our readers know about your book besides the fact that they can buy it anywhere books are sold? <laughs> no, it's always great to support presses directly. University of Nebraska Press. I do want to say one thing. Sorry, if there's anybody listening that identifies as a person of color that cannot afford the book, um, you're welcome to reach out to me and I have some copies that I'd be happy to send you. Definitely. We will include Melody's contact info in the text under the podcast. Thank you so much, Melody. This has been a real treat. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Strong Towns podcast and have a great day. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.